Honorable Peter R. Foley of Morgan County and the Honorable Edward Major Jr. of Monroe County. Good afternoon. In the case of embarrassing, I've got to find my title. The Indiana Department of Insurance and Indiana Patients Compensation Fund versus Doe, etc., and Cavens, etc. Attorney for appellant, Rich Blakelock. Here, Your Honor. And you are reserving five minutes? Correct, Your Honor. And I assume you are not speaking. No. Okay. And for the appellees, Gabriel Hawkins. Yes, Your Honor. Okay. And Brian Park. Good afternoon, Your Honor. You may be heard. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court, my name is Rich Blakelock with Lewis Wagner on behalf of the Patients' Compensation Fund. Here to ask the court to reverse the trial court summary judgment order for three reasons. First, the act, negligent, the act of negligently credentialing a physician who then sexually assaults a minor does not transform an otherwise common law negligence case into one of statutory medical malpractice. Second, the PCF is allowed to challenge whether a case falls within the scope of the act. It has done so for decades, and if it is not allowed to do so, that puts the decision of whether a case is covered by the act solely in the hands of two private parties. It is for a court to make that decision on coverage, not the PCF, not a plaintiff or a defendant, and Indiana Code 3418.15.3 does not change that result. Third, latches does not prevent the PCF from challenging application of the act if it applies to the, a government entity at all. There is no affirmative duty on the PCF to either substantively monitor the hundreds of proposed complaints that are filed each year, to intervene in those cases, and to conduct a discovery to determine whether or not a case falls under the act. We acted timely in this uh, case when it was brought to our attention in mid-2021. So I'll start with the negligent credentialing issue. I don't want to belabor the tragic facts here because uh, I don't read that uh, my colleagues here are asserting that what Mr. Cavins did was medical malpractice. We all seem to agree that what he did was not. But the notion advanced by the hospital is that because it was required to go through a credentialing process and is alleged to have done so negligently, it takes what would otherwise be ordinary negligence if these same acts were perpetrated by a non-physician at the hospital and transforms them into a case that falls under the statutory act. The hospital says it doesn't matter what type of tort was committed by the physician. It says, quote, it just requires some kind of underlying liability, end quote. They say that once the physician is credentialed, because that involves some professional medical judgment, that means that all subsequent acts of the physician are covered under a negligent credentialing claim under the act. Is there any authority for the argument by the hospital that negligent credentialing is a freestanding um, medical malpractice claim? Is there any, any case that has said that? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, they're, they get there by saying that the... Uh, the cases starting with Winona, then Fairbanks, and then um, Martinez versus Park, which I know Judge Robb was involved in. That's right. That, that somewhere along the line there was a misreading of the law. But no, I mean, I, my reading of the cases is that there's two levels. It has to be medical malpractice level one. If there is, then you can have negligent credentialing as long as there is a proximate cause element to that decision. So the issue then is whether the act treats two people employed by the hospital who do theoretically the same heinous act differently. As I read the hospital's position, if a nurse molested the plaintiff, that would not be covered by the act because nurses don't have to be credentialed. But just because the physician has to be credentialed mean the case is covered by the act. Cases from this court tell us two things that resolve those issues in the PCF's favor. For negligent credentialing to occur, there has to be an underlying act of medical malpractice, to your point, Judge. Does it have to be a medical malpractice of this case, or could there be, say, a, a companion case or a prior case? Um, 
that went under that you know, sort of was swept under the rug? Does that have to be this case that has to be the medical malpractice? Yeah, I'm unaware of any other situation that, that you're describing, Judge, in which, but I, I believe that's correct. I mean, it had, the, are you talking about the negligence as to the credentialing piece? Yes. Yeah, I think it ha there has to be proximate cause between the negligent decision to credential somebody to do something that then uh, allowed a physician to perform a professional service that harmed a particular plaintiff. I guess I'm not asking the question very well. What if there were other cases, a companion case or a prior case, that for whatever reason the credentialing was not taken away and then this happened? Would there be any segue from prior cases to this one or does it have to be this case as the underlying med mal? It has to be, I think it has to be this case. That might go to the question of was it negligent and, and perhaps goes into a question of negligent supervision, et cetera. And I would just note, in, in the record, there's nothing, I mean, there was cited by the hospital that this doctor had some prior incidents. They cite to the proposed complaint filed with the Department of Insurance. There's no evidence that they knew of anything prior to this credentialing decision. No, I just was asking about... Mm. Generally speaking, you know, narrowing or broadening the scope. Sure, and Mr. Blakelock, do you find in any inconsistency in this two-tiered analysis? I think uh, the word two is even italicized in Winona. Um, as you go from uh, Winona to Fairbanks to um, Martinez versus Park, Judge Rob's opinion, is there any inconsistency that you have recognized or that you would concede among those three cases on the question of negligent credentialing? No, I, I, I don't. And the only, I mean, the only difference is the Fairbanks case did involve a physician. Well, uh, yeah. but they say, I think the hospital says that the Fairbanks case can be distinguished on its facts. That's what the point you're making. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Now, here's my question. Is there, though, a through line setting that, distinguishing that case on its facts, a through line that uh, uh, sustains the notion that it takes two negligent acts uh, in order to establish negligent credentialing. Yes. Now, there's a through line there, is there not? Yeah, I, I believe there is. And, and I, I, frankly, I've, I've read uh, uh, hospitals attempt to distinguish it a couple times. I think it's, you know, picking a line here and picking a line there. But, but if you start with Winona, that was a physician involved credentialing. Right. Uh, Fairbanks did not, but it applied the standard because it was negligent supervision, retention, et cetera. And then I think made crystal clear it has to be this two-tier analysis, and then of course when we get to uh, Martinez versus Park, it applies that, um, even though the, the malpractice this was found not to happen. So even though Fairbanks can be distinguished on its facts, the principle that's being argued here today is still still apparent and was still a rule for decision in that case. Yes, and, and I think actually it, it can highlight the fact that in Fairbanks, the court didn't have a physician, but still applied the same analysis, and it kind of gets to my point. Why are we applying a fundamentally different analysis just because it's credentialing and say, well, because we have a physician credentialed, we no longer have to have an underlying uh, fact of malpractice. So I think actually the fact that Fairbanks uh, discussed the issue in the context of a non-physician actually supports the proposition that it still has to be two, uh, whether it's negligent supervision. You, you don't get a magic pass because you are credentialing a physician. Um, so, uh, as I mentioned, the, the, the two tiers which, because there is not two tiers of negligence here, because of what Cavins did was not medical malpractice, that, in our opinion, ends the inquiry. Then, um, even if theoretically we conclude that there doesn't have to be a first level, the, the, still, the, the credentialing st decision still has to approximately cause the injury to the plaintiff. And this is from Winona, which involved a physician. The credentialing process alleged must have resulted in a definable act of medical malpractice that proximately caused injury to the plaintiff. I think Martinez versus Park highlights that proposition where Dr. Park was alleged to have uh, messed up a breast reduction surgery. They said you committed malpractice there and you should have never been credentialed to perform the breast reduction surgery in the first place. That's a through line, as you would say, Judge, between the decision to credential him for a procedure to the mistake of that type of procedure to an injury. That's the type of proximate cause it has to pass through, similar to a cardiologist. I had uh, cases with my friends here at uh, Cohen and Malad where there was cardiologists up in northern Indiana, <coughs> northern Indiana that were alleged to have not been credentialed to put in pacemakers and then mess it up when they did it. That decision 
at the credentialing board to say, okay, you can do pacemakers, that does require some professional judgment, which then proximately caused his mistake because they made the decision allowing to do it. That's the type of proximate cause that has to exist, and that doesn't happen here. The argument is... But because this was a settled claim, mm -hmm. and there's reference in the briefs to the idea that it's admitted and established, doesn't that go to that proximate cause that you're talking about, that that is the proximate cause that would be admitted and established under this fact scenario? The, the, the proximate cause of the negligent credentialing? Of the credentialing. Yeah, no, and respectfully, and the reason is that statute says that the court, in the, the 3418.15.3, the court, when you, when you petition the trial court under a new petition, which is what happened here, the court is to deem the liability of the health care provider admitted as an, an established. Well, we are not the health care provider. Our liability as a PCF is not established. And if we go down that path, theoretically here, what the plaintiff could say is, well, the plaintiff and the defendants, forget the um, negligent credentialing for just a moment, if that didn't exist. And you have Cavins, who did this heinous act, which we all agree isn't malpractice. Under that theory, if you follow it to its logical conclusion, the plaintiff and the defendant could say, this is medical malpractice. For whatever reason, we want to put it into the act. Isn't the, the way this is structured is that you have the question of um, negligence in under, under its traditional meaning, and that's what the admitted and established language is about, is the negligence of the health care provider, and that is not one and the same as the, um, the applicability or compensability uh, in a claim against the patient compensation fund. There, there are two different analyses. It may very well be that the health care provider was negligent, but that may not equate to a redressable medical malpractice claim against the fund. Correct. And that's what uh, Judge Walton Pratt said in a district court opinion that then went to the Seventh Circuit over the... Yeah, that, I, that's I followed exactly that. And she, she made that very clear, even, I think, italicized the words against right. the health care provider. Of course, the Seventh Circuit um, reversed her, but on different grounds. Correct. The circuit, Seventh Circuit had certified two questions to the Supreme Court, and Justice Slaughter wrote the opinion and said, well, we're not going to look at the first one. We're going to answer the second one. So what she had to say, in her opinion, was not directly addressed by the Seventh Circuit, but what she had to say was very clarifying. Yeah, and that, and that actually is the, I mean, she is the only person that has definitively opined on that. I had that case, I argued to the Seventh Circuit and I argued to the Supreme Court, and the Seventh Circuit said, well, maybe it's not that clear, and, and, but so let's send it over to the Indiana uh, Supreme Court, and they said we're not going to get to it, as you said. What about the uh, Supreme Court opinion written by Justice Massa in uh, Robertson versus B.O.? At the very last section of that opinion, it's got a section called legal compensability versus factual compensability. Mm -hmm. Can you address that? Well, I'm trying to think exactly of that section. It's not coming to immediate to mind. Okay. But, well, but, well, but I think what I can say is legal compensability and factual compensability generally aren't whether it is qualifying under the act in the first place. And I understand, you know, there's there's always been the question of what can we as a PCF challenge when the case has been filed under 3418.15.3, and there's been a lot of slicing and dicing on that. I think, I know the case you're talking about, I think it's, it doesn't address at all whether you can have that debate in the first place. Uh, it doesn't really, but at the very end, he, the Supreme Court, in a unanimous opinion, reaffirms that the, the fund, the patient compensation fund, is correct that it is not required to pay non-compensable mm -hmm. damages. Right. So there, there wasn't a thorough explanation of the issue the way there was in Judge uh, Tanya Walton Pratt's opinion in the district court, but the Supreme Court spends quite a bit of time distinguishing between the negligence piece yep. and the uh, liability under the fund. One of the three cases we cite, Judge, uh, the Wisniewski, um, I think it's Mortel, of, of the three that have allowed us to challenge that. It was a situation where uh, the alleged malpractice was releasing a patient from a mental hospital who then drove out and killed someone. Committed somebody. murder. Pardon? Because Committed murder. murder. Right. And, and that is the proposition from that case. And I'm sorry I wasn't picking up on that, uh, you were saying. But yeah, you can't make something that is not medical malpractice, malpractice by having a plaintiff and defendant say, this is malpractice. And that's why we have to be able to challenge it. If we can't, 
Nobody will. I mean, and I'm not suggesting that we have the final say on this either. Um, and it can put, I, you know, I sympathize with uh, the plaintiffs that when you have a situation here with the Martinez's opinion that created a little bit of a cloud as to what is this, the actual standard, it can create an issue. Well, can I ask you that now that you brought Martinez? You're talking about the most recent Martinez opinion, Correct. the 2019 opinion. Right. That was written by Judge Mathias. Yes. Is that right? No. It was written by Judge uh, Altice. Uh, it's written by the, the one, yeah, the Judge second. Judge concurred, I think. No, right. Martinez no. was written by Matthias. Matthias wrote it, okay. Well, I was confused, I'm sorry. Um, Altice wrote the subsequent Doe opinion, okay. Yes. My question for you um, is, do we have to address the apparent um, discrepancy between Martinez and the uh, Altice Doe opinion? I mean, it would be helpful, I think, for everybody involved, but I, I, you know, our view of it is that this, the Indiana Supreme Court, through Howard uh, Memorial from 2012, which said, here's the standard that applies to medical malpractice, has not been overruled. So, you know, you have the, the test of is it curative and salutary, can a jury establish it, uh, you know, do we need expert opinion, et cetera. So, I think it conflicts with Supreme Court opinion, but it does, and it does conflict with a long line of Indiana Court of Appeals cases that have followed it. And then factually, as Judge Altice did in the Doe versus Department of Insurance case, he said that this doesn't apply, the Martinez case, because that involves abuse and the gentleman, or a physical uh, altercation, and the employee was actually following hospital protocol, which clearly Cavins was not here. So, uh, so he distinguishes that factually as well as um, legally. Okay. Now, one other question about the posture of this case. It comes up on the denial of your motion for summary judgment. And you had an expert witness who testified uh, uh, about the underlying uh, claim or the underlying factor. Was there any testimony on the other side about that, or is it, was that just conceded? That, I think you, that, early on in your argument here, you said that's really not an issue. Yeah, there, there was nothing uh, opposing that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to just sort of get back to this credentialing notion because the, you know, the idea is that there was a professional service involved here. But if we look at the statute and the uh, rule, the Indiana Administrative Code rule, none of that talks about making the decision on, let's just assume for the sake of argument that there was something in Cavan's history that suggested he was going to molest people, that he had had a history of that. There's nothing in those statutes that said that's the role of the physicians. The physician's role is, is Cavan's capable of performing these specific tasks relating to the treatment of the patient. We all agree that what he did wasn't patient treatment, so it's actually a non sequitur to say that that decision to give him access was the proximate cause of the harm. Because if you're saying that the, that the physicians are making a medical judgment and you're not disputing that what happened was not medical judgment, then one couldn't cause the other uh, to happen under proximate cause. I also want to just briefly mention um, just so where this would lead, for example, you know, the hospital takes a position that credential, if we're credentialed, whatever this guy does or person does, at least as to that claim, uh, they're good. Well, if, let's follow that to the logical extreme. I walk into my family doctor uh, that's at the same hospital and has been credentialed by them to do it. He takes out the stethoscope, starts checking me, my lungs, my heart, all that stuff. Something snaps with him, wraps around my neck, chokes me to death. The hospital would say, well, as to the negligent credentialing claim, that's still a med medical malpractice case. I can't envision that the drafters of the legislation intended for that type of claim, standing by itself, because nobody's going to suggest that what happened to me was not or was medical malpractice, but that act of credentialing somehow shields the hospital from uh, ordinary negligence claim. On the issue of latches, which has uh, been raised by the hospital. First of all, the plaintiff doesn't acknowledge or I think actually admits that we didn't sit on our rights. Second of all, it shouldn't apply in a common law, uh, I'm sorry, to a government entity unless there's extreme harm to the government entity. And then lastly, if you think about the way the fund is structured, there are provisions in the Medical Malpractice Act that are shall. The commissioner shall do certain things. The PCF shall do certain things. One of them is not the, the, the uh, department shall monitor uh, proposed complaints from the beginning and get actively involved. 791 of these things were filed in 2021. We can't possibly do that. We have no obligation to do that. I think early on you said you had no, the, the fund had no affirmative duty right. 
to take a position on whether the claim was a medical malpractice claim until a claim was filed with the trial court seeking access to the fund. Is that the point in which the fund has a duty to step forward sure. and respond? Yeah, and, and the statute 341811, which starts these preliminary determinations, requires the commissioner to be served. We have. We have intervened in cases. We intervened in Cutchin because we caught wind of it, we saw what was happening, and we intervened. But, we but don't it's have in a your duty. discretion. Right. Yeah, we don't have a duty to do that, and therefore latches doesn't apply. And moreover, we intervened, uh, or actually we got served with that case in the underlying action in July. Uh, they settled it while our summary judgment was about to be filed. Um, so it, and again, I don't uh, envy the plaintiff's position in these types of situations, but they do have the preliminary determination available, declaratory judgments. I get phone calls, the department gets phone calls of people saying, I got this weird case, do you think it falls under or not? We can give some guidance early on, but we can't be stopped as a hospital suggests, with these hundreds and, and over the years thousands of cases from challenging whether something uh, applies uh, under the act. I see my time is up. Thank you. May I begin? Yes. Good afternoon, and may it please the court. My name is Gabriel Hawkins. I represent the appellees, Jane Doe, John Doe 1, John Doe 2, and the appellees ask that this court affirm the trial court's denial of the PCF's motion for summary judgment. As a brief preliminary matter, I ask that uh, I yield 10 minutes of my time to anonymous hospital pursuant to appellate rule 53. Mr. Hawkins, could I ask you just a general question before you get started? Please. Are we presented here with a pure question of law? Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. Um, and, and I think that's, as I get into the argument, I think that'll become increasingly clear. Uh, but something I'd like to focus on, because so much of the questioning was directed towards that, uh, is this notion of what the PCF can and cannot challenge. Um, I, I think if you look, take a close look at the briefs, you'll actually see that there's really not a lot of daylight between the plaintiff's position and the PCF's position. To that end, I'll read directly from the PCF's brief, page 13 at the top. Appellee plaintiffs are correct that a party cannot challenge the liability-based elements of a claim. And then on page 15, it says, and you know, of course, what the PCF may do is challenge when the facts underlying the settlement do not, sell, do not sound in medical malpractice. That is precisely what the plaintiffs at bar are contending. Uh, pursuant to Indiana Code section 34.18.15.3, subsection 5, what the PCF cannot do is challenge the liability-based elements of a claim. And what you specifically heard here is, is something I hadn't heard before, is proximate cause. Not only is proximate cause an element of a claim, but I can think of at least three or four cases off the top of my head where the Indiana Supreme Court expressly said, no PCF, what you can't do here is challenge proximate cause. And that's precisely what we heard. And furthermore, if you look at page 12 of the transcript, and I quote, uh, the PCF specifically said, the plaintiffs cannot satisfy negligent credentialing's element of an underlying act of malpractice. That's precisely what the PCF's doing. And we, we heard the parade of horribles like, oh, we, we've got to be able to challenge these statutes. The plaintiffs are not contesting that the PCF can't challenge whether this case is malpractice. However, their method of challenging it has to be what is the substance of the claim? What are the facts of a claim? Does that claim sound in medical malpractice? Let me ask a question that's kind of a little bit off the, where we are exactly, but does the age of the victim, in terms of the comment you just made, does the age of the victim have any bearing on the nature of this tort? Absolutely. Uh, and that, that ties, your question ties in perfectly to the proximate cause contention and why negligent credentialing in this circumstance constitutes medical malpractice. Because when you, when you heard Mr. Blakelock's analogy, what was missing is the medical judgment of the hospital. You see, when a, when a hospital credentials a physician, it's not just like, okay, we're going to sign him up. What the hospital does is apply expert medical knowledge to say, these are the type of procedures that a physician is going to perform. 
And that hospital would know that part of that physician's duties is touching the genitals of children. So to tie into your question, Judge Rob, that's what the medical knowledge of the hospital comes in. They should say, wait a minute. But if there's not been a prior, um, as the PCF would say, and there's not been um, any suggestion of prior improper behavior, how do we make that leap? Um, the answer is, um, first of all, if there's not been a prior, I don't have much of a claim. Uh, the problem with what the PCF is doing is they're getting into the facts of the case, which we haven't got into from the settlement. If we had the facts of the case, we would establish that he was arrested previously for this. He had a previous arrest for sexually assaulting, not only sexual assault, but sexual assault of a patient. Okay, we're and jumping into the facts here, though, and we really want, don't want to do that except to say what, what is the underlying claim. And there seems to be an agreement that the underlying claim is not medical malpractice. A sexual assault is a crime. It is not medical malpractice. Do you agree with that? It depends on Martinez versus Doe. And I'm not, I'm, my view of, if, if Martinez versus Oaklawn governs, then I think actually sexual assault uh, can, in certain circumstances, be characterized. Because it arises out of and in the course of the physician's employment by the hospital. Exactly. And, and to be clear, I'm not circling the wagons around Martinez. I'm not, I'm not disclaiming it either. Uh, the fact of the matter is Doe is also my case, and that's, that's transfers pending in that case, and I suspect we're going to find an answer one way or the other. Uh, and I just want to emphasize in all of this, you know, the plaintiffs really don't have, at least from a general point of view, a rooting interest. Yeah, you make that point clear in your briefing. Can you help me with something here? I, I have read numerous times your uh, pages 11 through 14 of your brief in which you try to uh, distinguish um, Fairbanks from, from Winona. And you argue that, uh, that there was a miss. Is that, is that right? I think you're, you're probably referring to anonymous hospitals brief, Your Honor. Yeah, oh, okay, uh, I'm don't, sorry. And, and, and in fact, I can make it clear for you. Um, it, my interpretation, uh, negligent credentialing, Mr. Blakelock is correct. As an element of negligent credentialing, you have to have an underlying act of medical malpractice. I've tried numerous negligent credentialing cases. One of the things you have to prove is medical, is medical malpractice. I don't think there's any realistic dispute about that. And that's why, but going back to why this is a question of law, what I'm complaining about what the PCF's doing is they're getting here with the facts by making a factual assertion saying there weren't any prior instances. Well, first of all, that's untrue, but that's a factual assertion that we didn't have a chance to prove because we settled, and that's the whole point of Indiana Code, Section 34, 1815.3. You don't want to have to go through and try a case. I mean, that's the whole point of settling it, so you don't have to go and prove those claims. So, um, but we, so is, to your statement that the element of negligent credentialing is medical malpractice, we do not have medical malpractice as the underlying tort. Mm -hmm then your only through route to coverage under the act is that it's deemed admitted and established. Is that not true? It is not true. And here, here's the distinction, Your Honor, and I, I certainly understand why you say it. And, and syllogistically, I, I point out, as I acknowledge in the brief, the, the PCF syllogism is, is sound. Um, here's the problem with that, as far as I can see, is this court, the Indiana Supreme Court, has stated on a number of occasions is it, you don't look at the mere caption of a complaint. You look what's going to be proved by way of the allegations in a complaint to determine whether it's medical malpractice. And whether you call plaintiff's claim a formally negligent credentialing or formally common law uh, negligent hiring, negligent supervision, it's going to sound in medical malpractice, and here's why. Because the substance of that claim, what you're going to have is there's going to be an allegation that anonymous hospital, its negligent credentialing, it's, I'm sorry, its credentialing board was negligent in applying its medical knowledge not to realize that someone with Dr. Caven's past really should not be in a, in a position performing these specific types of medical procedures. It involves medical knowledge, medical specialty, and, and I think to another point that this court has often stated, our Supreme Court has often stated, is that if you use expert medical testimony to prove a claim, if it would be helpful for a claim, that case likely sounds in medical malpractice. So you're saying basically that a negligent credentialing claim sits on its own bottom. I think. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's you or the hospital that says that it doesn't matter what the underlying 
act or conduct is. That would be me, Your Honor. Does not matter is what you've got in there. Right, because it's the, the, the actual substance of the claim, how is it going to be tried? In, in medical testimony, medical knowledge, the medical judgment of the hospital, it, it, it's, it's not only, and it takes us back to the proximate cause contention we hear, it was a medical judgment that caused this. Let me ask a question about the comment you made about um, examining the underlying and medical expert. Um, Talk to me a little bit about the need for a legal expert, and I'm thinking sort of tangentially of um, res ipsa loquitur, of leaving a sponge. It certainly would not require an expert to come in and say, don't leave sponges when you're doing an operation. Does that instruct us in any way? I, I think I understand your question. Please interrupt me if I don't. Um, but what you're really getting, res ipsa I'm sorry, the race ipsa loquitur cases are really what we're talking about is the liability is just so obvious, we don't need an expert. That doesn't mean it's not expert medical judgment. Well, and that, and that, so I mean, to me, that's the distinction. But does that help, does that tell us anything with regard to this? Or is that so sui generis that it? Um, and the answer is, I'm not sure. And, and, and part of it is because of the nature where we stand here. I, I think if this case were to go to trial, what you'd have is detailed expert medical testimony talking about credentialing panels determinations and how specifically they go through and say these are the procedures that are performed and wait a minute someone with this background we don't want them touching children's genitals and I, I think that's but, but is that I understand that that the act of credentialing is done by folks who have certain qualifications in, in that but I mean isn't that uh, within the realm of a regular negligence claim to understand that this group over here, these are the red flags. I mean, the, the example brought by your opponent was is, is that um, with the credentialing, there would be a distinction with nurse or other maybe professional staff that's non-credentialed. Um, and then so, you know, you have one group of victims or plaintiffs that would be going to the fund or eligible under the act, and you have one group that's not. But it, wouldn't the jury be sitting and analyzing it under the same uh, um, um, set of uh, conditions? In other words, that they wouldn't need the act or the um, um, uh, medical review and all those other things that go with the, uh, the components of the of the act. I believe they would, and here's why. Because what is not within the knowledge of the common juror, at least some, I mean, I, I, it's not every juror, is, is the specific duties of a pediatrician. Uh, most jurors, I mean, the, the, the acts here that we're specifically flag raising is there's the hernia test, there's what's referred to as the discharge test. Most people don't know, okay, pediatricians perform discharge tests and what, what the hernia test consists of, and that's why, well, everyone might recognize the red flag, and that might be res ipsa loquitur, but the thing that's not so obvious, and the thing that medical expert testimony is needed, is, is the knowledge of the actual physician duties. But on the facts of this case, that is, that's a Grand Canyon away from what, what occurred, right? I, I, I'm not following you, I'm sorry. Well, I mean, the, the acts of the physician in this place, right. you're saying this person, it was negligent to be credentialed. Correct. Correct. And that was the proximate cause of the injury. Correct. And to know that, that these red flags existed that would have prevented credentialing, you have to have specialized knowledge. Correct. That's what you're, and the, the intricacies of the different procedures are, are part of what that would an analysis would be. In other words, what a pediatrician does when they're examining a child. Correct? Correct, Your Honor. But... I, Okay. And in terms of the facts of the case, incidentally, that's exactly what we have here. Um, that's, I mean, that, that's, that's exactly what, what gave rise to the filing of the lawsuit. I'm, try, uh, I'm trying. But I mean, the facts are, of the, the acts of the physician are so far apart and just, uh, that's why it's not medical malpractice I, to do what he did. I understand. Sexual assault. The, the problem is, is his act, the act of performing the discharge test, the act of performing the hernia test, it, it, should alert someone at the hospital, wait, someone with this propensity to, f to perform this act, to have them actually doing this might trigger it. Why, why wouldn't that be a suitable question in an ordinary negligence right. case before a jury? Indiana recognizes the common law tort of negligent hiring and retention. You, okay. If you uncouple the negligent credentialing charge from an underlying 
cognizable medical malpractice claim. How does that differ from a common law tort of negligent hiring and retention? Quite honestly, Your Honor, I think they'd be very similar in this. I mean, at least as the facts of this case. Would but if they're fairly similar, then it's a, it's a common law ne negligence case that can go to a jury and doesn't require a medical review panel. Require? It doesn't require a panel. But in terms of how the case it would be tried, it would certainly expert medical testimony saying this should have been the red flag for the hospital with what they do. And that, to me, that, that's what push, pushes this case into the medical malpractice realm. But expert medical testimony occurs often in Indiana courtrooms in cases that are unrelated to medical malpractice claims. Um, that's true. Um, but first of all, but that is true. There are certain times expert medical testimony is for usually establishing causation or injury. Here the expert testimony would be used to establish liability, which I believe is a, is a bit of a difference. Um, and again, though, it, it is, it, it, there are, you know, at least scores of cases that, that talk about the, the relevancy of expert medical testimony. But you're, you're saying, you said they're very similar, but you're not willing to concede that once you strip away the underlying claim, everybody agrees that what occurred here was not medical malpractice. There's no dispute over that. This is, what we have here is a sexual assault, and there are many cases that say the sexual assault is not a medical uh, care, okay? So why is this not simply a common law tort of negligent hiring and retention? Because what is typically not needed in your standard negligent hiring and retention claim is expert testimony to assist the trier of fact and, their, and more importantly medical judgment on the part of the hospital saying, wait a minute, this is the duties, this is the obligation of, of the physician. That's going to trigger someone with a proclivity towards molestations towards assault, and it, it's going to make that more likely to happen. My time is up, and I uh, thank you, Aaron. Thank you. Good afternoon. May it please the court. Uh, my name is Brian Park. I represent the hospital that credentialed Dr. Cavins. Uh, I'd like to begin with a statement and an assumption that I believe this court can take to the bank, and that's this. Medical credentialing is an act of a hospital that is done in, uh, that involves the exercise of professional judgment, skill, and expertise. And that's not something that uh, the PCF has disputed, whether here today in argument or, or in briefing. And so, in short, it, it's a healthcare decision. And ultimately, regardless of what the physician does later on, whether, whether it be a surgical error or slug someone in, in the the uh, operating room, regardless of what it is, that decision will always be a healthcare decision. So that's, I think, an assumption that, that really guides the argument here today, because what we have is we've got this negligent credentialing claim, and the issue that, as PCF argues, is that does the actions of the underlying physician, if it doesn't constitute healthcare, does that then take that out of the realm of the Med-Mal Act? And so we've, we've talked about Fairbanks, I think we, we have to discuss this. Uh, the elephant in the room in discussing Fairbanks is that it didn't involve a claim of negligent credentialing. There was a, a, it was a guidance counselor, they committed a sexual assault, and so uh, all the, the issues as far as uh, the expertise of a uh, credentialing body, none of that applied in Fairbanks. And so I think, just based on that very simple fact alone, Fairbanks is not the case to be discussing here. Winona, which we've kind of danced around, I do believe is a case worth discussing. Um, and so Winona was the first opportunity that this court held that a claim of negligent credentialing falls under the Med-Mal Act. And just very briefly, uh, the facts of Winona involved uh, a surgeon was sued for a surgical complication, and then the issue was, um, can the hospital that credentialed that physician, does that um, does a negligent credentialing of that hospital, does that fall within the Med-Mal Act? And so this court went through a variety of factors in citing yes, that we, we do think that a claim of negligent credentialing falls under the act for a variety of reasons, and I think these are important to go through. Uh, this court noted that the composition and function of panels supports the inclusion of negligent credentialing under the act. Uh, it's this idea that medical review panels are composed of physicians and credentialing bodies are composed of physicians. And, and I think uh, a point that um, I want to emphasize this, our General Assembly has decided as a matter of law, it, doctors are the only ones that can credential physicians, that um, by statute and by regulation, that is a decision that must be made by doctors. So we did discuss the, the idea, could a layperson have, have known, um, you know, in this circumstance, should this individual have been granted credentials? That doesn't change the fact that as a matter of law, doctors have to make this decision. 
Uh, this court went on in Winona to note that hospitals fall within the definition of a qualified health care provider. Uh, it's not just individuals. Hospitals can, can also qualify. And the court noted that the act of credentialing and appointing licensed physicians to its medical staff is a service rendered by the hospital in its role as a health care provider. Uh, and then the court, uh, this court went on to note that the act is designed to exclude only conduct which is unrelated to the promotion of a patient's health or the provider's exercise of professional expertise. And so if that's the issue, that the act only excludes those, uh, those uh, actions that um, do not relate to the provider's exercise or professional expertise. Well, medical credentialing certainly checks that box because as we've established, uh, it is a healthcare decision of the credentialing body, again, that as a matter of law, um, doctors have to make those kinds of decisions. So Winona had, had this wrinkle, and, and I think this is really where the, uh, the issue uh, stems from. If the actions of the healthcare provider, if they aren't malpractice, and we've talked about sexual assault, let's just assume for argument's sake that that isn't malpractice. Uh, that's not necessarily a position we've taken. I wouldn't go so far as to say that we've conceded that, but let's just assume for argument's sake uh, that that is true. Um, it, as the PCF is, is relying on Winona and Fairbanks, if the actions of the physician don't constitute health care, then the negligent credentialing doesn't constitute health care. And, and I would say, why, why not? Because ultimately, what the, that will never change the character and nature of the hospital's decision. It but always... Mr. Brooks, let me ask a question. Let's, if, as you said, let's assume for the sake of argument that, that the issue, the child molest, is malpractice, medical malpractice. Sure. To what extent must there have been notice in making the decision to credential someone? And if there weren't any other incidences or prior incidences or things that would have or should have been in the knowledge of the credentialing body, is that where we start and end, that it doesn't matter in some respects whether or not child molest can be a medical malpractice issue if you don't have the first leg of the question? Sure. Let, let me answer it this way. Again, if we start with the assumption that credentialing is a healthcare decision, right. and then from there, and we've talked about it, did that proximately cause the injury at, at issue? And in this instance, we've, we've talked about the facts uh, of, um, you know, what, what was the hospital on notice of? Well, the allegations were that the hospital uh, did not adequately address Dr. Caven's propensity to commit sexual misconduct when it credentialed this, this physician. And so I think that we have, we have that link from the credentialing approximately causing the exact same kind of injury that the plaintiffs suffered here, which was a sexual assault. And so I, I think that's significant because uh, I, I think there's been a mischaracterization of the hospital's position here. It, we're, not, we're not going so broad to say that any tort committed by any credentialed doctor uh, means that negligent credentialing of that physician falls within the scope of the act. That, that's not an argument we've ever asserted. But if we start with that underlying assumption that, again, hospital credentialing, that is a healthcare decision. I mean, there's no dispute about it. If that proximately caused the injury that's at issue, whether it be a sexual assault, whether or not that sexual assault is or isn't within the scope of the Med-Mal Act, that's not the dispositive point, as, as I would argue. I, I think the proximate causation between the negligent credentialing and the underlying tort, that, that's what takes it within the, the Med-Mal Act. So, Mr. Park, are you advocating for um, advancing the law in this direction? In other words, there isn't any decided case holding along the lines you've just described. I, I do think that, that we are dealing with an issue of first impression, Judge. Um, I, I think the PCF has taken the position that, that Fairbanks uh, holds that, well, if the actions of the doctor aren't a, a health care decision, then the credentialing of that doctor can't be, uh, d doesn't fall within the scope of the Med-Mal Act. I don't believe that, that Fairbanks controls anything related to negligent credentialing, again, just because they didn't address a claim of negligent well, credentialing. Well, what, what about Winona and then the, the other Martinez case, the 2011 Martinez, Martinez versus Park? So Winona has the wrinkle, that, that the self-described wrinkle of, as uh, I, I would read the case, um, what Winona said was, uh, to prove a claim of negligent credentialing, you, got, you have to prove two negligent acts. First, you have to prove the negligence on the physician. And once you get that, then you can go on to uh, get a claim of negligent credentialing against the hospital. That, that's how I would read Winona. And I think it's consistent with the issues that were actually before the court in Winona, which was we had a, a physician there as a surgical complication. There was no issue. There was no dispute whatsoever uh, whether or not that was a, a claim that fell within the scope of the act. I think for purposes of that, that opinion, that was just assumed that the actions of the doctor fell within the scope of the act. So Winona didn't address this nuanced distinction of 
well, does the, do the actions of the doctor have to constitute health care for the negligent credentialing to fall within health care? They never went that far. And, and again, I go back to when Winona, uh, when they asked, why, why do we want to put negligent credentialing within the scope of the act? For all the reasons we went through, that uh, doctors make credentialing decisions, doctors sit on review panels, uh, hospitals are qualified health care providers, all those, does any of that make a difference, or does, do the actions of the doctor make any difference to that analysis? I'd, I'd argue not one bit, that regardless of what the doctor does, it doesn't change any of that. It doesn't change the fact that doctors sit on the panels and make these decisions, and that credentialing ultimately is, is a health care decision. Um, so uh, just to, to circle back here, um, I want to address a few points. Uh, we talked about the, the sponge example, I believe. Um, and so one of the factors that, that's been, um, it, that courts have developed over the years as far as at what point do we think uh, something should fall in the scope of the act? Well, the, one of those issues is, are the issues resolvable by a lay jury or do we need medical expertise? And so in this instance, I think given the announcement of our General Assembly that has said, doctors, as a matter of law, you are the ones that have to make credentialing decisions. If we ask the lay jury, what is the standard of care that applies to a hospital's decision to uh, grant an, an individual the privilege to practice medicine, medical credentials? I don't think a lay jury can answer that because as a matter of law, they can't make that decision. And so if that's one of the, the inquiries, um, then again, we're checking another box as far as why medical credentialing in this instance falls within the act. Mr. Park, can you answer a, a specific question here? Uh, was there a tort claim notice filed in this case? There was, Judge. I don't know if that, that's in the record, but, but uh, there was. There was one. Okay, thank you. Thank I see you. that my time is up. Thank you. Mr. Blaylock, you may conclude. Thank you, Your Honor. <clears throat> I just want to respond, uh, excuse me, I just want to reply to a couple of those points. Number one, the hospital wrote that it just requires some kind of underlying liability. I mean, that, I, I have a respectful disagreement that we mischaracterize anything. As it relates to the sort of the take it to the bank comment, here's what the court said in Winona versus Kuster. The credentialing decision, quote, is neither clearly within the act nor outside of it, end quote, because it, quote, involves a blend of both medical and non-medical personnel and expertise, end quote. Then the court went to look at the history of the act and so forth and said that it is. I think it may give this court the opportunity to say not everything in that process is medical, because getting back to the, the test of whether something is medical malpractice or not, can a lay person understand the question they're being posed as a juror? Here's the question. Did a hospital wrongly credential a physician who, in theory, had a history of uh, molesting somebody to be around children? That doesn't take any medical expertise whatsoever. It's the same question you'd ask at daycare. It's the same question you'd ask if a nurse did it. So there, there are certainly things, as the court recognized in Winona versus Kuster, that aren't strictly medical. And that goes to, I think, what um, the plaintiff's counsel was, was mentioning, the appellee's plaintiff's counsel there. He said, performing these types of medical procedures and to talk about a discharge test. We're not saying that what this doctor did was negligently performing a discharge test. We're saying he sexually assaulted somebody. And so it's that blending of those two lines there uh, that I think it, it gets to this non sequitur that I've been mentioning and talking about, which is once you don't have underlying medical malpractice, which we don't, how are you saying that the, the credential committee made a decision about something that doesn't involve medical malpractice and then that involved expertise? It doesn't. It, it simply is a normal decision that an employer would make, that they made, apparently. And I'd also, again, note that the statute and the rule doesn't say that they're going to decide criminal issues. I mean, I don't care if it was a, a surgeon, a, a, any kind of physician who has access to a patient, and that's really what this boils down to, does the credentialing give somebody, uh, a physician, access to a patient to then perform a heinous act? Is that, is that medical malpractice? It's it, it just so happened in this one that it was uh, children, but we've seen cases like Doe where these are adults uh, that are uh, sexually assaulted. Um, just a couple of quick points. The, the allegation that... Um, there is something in the record about prior incidents, is from the proposed complaint filed with the Department of Insurance. The complaint that was actually filed against us by the plaintiff under 34.18.15.3 makes no mention of negligent credentialing. It just says, you know, here's what happened. 
Um, and so I know in one of the briefs there was, well, you can't cite to something in another proceeding. The only thing that was alleged in that complaint was uh, that Dr., or no, I don't want to call him Dr., Mr. Cavins uh, committed that sexual assault. Um, so that, I don't have any other comments unless the court has any questions for me. As one of my colleagues would say, there's no penalty for finishing a minute or two early. Well, then I'll take that and step aside. Thank you, Your Honor. Gentlemen, thank you for a well-argued case. Take nothing from the questions we ask. We do it to encourage the conversation. We will have an opinion in due course. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. All rise. The court is now adjourned.